Rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Rumors of Grace. Before we begin and I introduce my new friend and someone that I'm very excited about talking to today, I just want to remind you that if you haven't joined our Facebook group, please do so. You can just search in Facebook, Rumors of Grace podcast, and we will let you in. If you haven't left a review on iTunes, please do so. And also, those of you who have been asking about Spotify, we now have a Spotify link that you can join and listen that way as well. So I encourage you to do that. On today's episode, episode number 55, I'm joined with Ms. Michelle Collins. Michelle is a wife and mother to four grown children. She served in the U.S. Marine Corps and is currently pursuing a doctorate in psychology as well as additional degrees in biblical studies and Christian counseling. I can't wait to talk with her about how she's doing all three at the same time. (laughs) She's an introvert, and she's dedicated to fitness of both body and mind. Michelle possesses the rare ability to, to participate in a discussion and see both sides without disparaging those with whom she might disagree. She's currently writing a book on the grief cycle applied to religious deconstruction. And right now, the working title is Into the Gray. Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking, thank you for taking the time. I reached out to you because we share some mutual friends. Mm -hmm. And also I've heard you on uh, another podcast. And and I did want to kind of open with talking about your current podcast that you kind of host and do, which is called Bookish, correct? Bookish, the canon continues, yes. And can you just tell our listeners what that is and give a shout out to how they can kind of go find that? Sure. Bookish, the canon continues. It was the brainchild of Rafael Palendo at Choir Publishing. And he approached me knowing that I'm basically a bookworm. I read hundreds of books a year. And so he said, I think I have an idea that'll fit your your specific skill set. And I said, Oh boy, <laughs> what is that? And he says, I want to, I want you to read books. And I said, Oh, awesome. <laughs> I can do that. I already do that. The idea originally, it was myself and a co-host. Um, we've revamped a little and re-released this year. So our format changed slightly. I no longer have a specific co-host anymore. What we have is different people that come on the podcast. The idea, our tagline is bridging the sacred secular divide book by book. The point being that even though the official canon is closed, that God still inspires. And he does that in different ways to different people. And so some people find God in nature. Some people find God in music. Some people find God in, in books they read, things like that. So the, the codicil on having somebody come on, however, is they're not allowed to talk about their own work. They have to talk about something that has inspired them in their work or in their journey. And so they will introduce a book. I, of course, have to read that book and then the discussion ensues. But the idea coming to the point of how did this book inspire you? How does it relate to your spirituality? Does it relate to your spirituality? Because not everything does, but there's always something to be educated on in every new book that we read. So I've, I've been asked to read some books that I probably wouldn't have picked up on my own, mm-hmm. um, but found that I really, really enjoyed. 
And I've been hit with some subjects that are a little above my head. So that's always a little interesting when I have to discuss a book that I may not fully understand. So I try to be really honest about that because I'm no genius, but (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I can think at a higher level, but at the same time, (laughs) some of that stuff is really up there. So it's been a lot of fun. I enjoyed the, I enjoy listening to it because like you said, your guests that you have on, they might be authors themselves, but right. they are really not talking about their own things. They're talking, right. you guys are both talking about a book that has influenced them, which is really fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have one coming up. He, uh, when I asked him to be on the podcast, he said, I, I, so I explained to him, you have to pick a book and it can't be your own. And he goes, I've written 26 books. I said, I'm aware. <laughs> you can't pick your own. He's like, Oh man, <laughs> but he picked a good one. So we're going to have a, a, a good one coming up, but, um, good. Do you mind pre-releasing what that book is going to be about? Actually, I have quite a few. My bookshelf behind me probably has three or f- uh, like five or six that I'm still waiting to read. I think his was called, oh boy, let me see if I can, The Shift. I think mm. it's called The Shift. And there's all different subject matter, political, religious, art, you know, history. There's lots of different subject matter. One that we've already done was with Kevin Miller. That was on the subject of mimetic theory of which I've been somewhat of a student for the last four or five years on, although it still remains much of it a mystery to me, but (laughs) I do understand it elementary level. So that was one of those that I felt completely out of my range on. Yeah. But Kevin was very gracious and Kevin's going to come back, I believe. I think we have a couple more that he wanted to do. So that's um, great. So I just got to find the time to read all these books. (laughs) That's great. So, so all my listeners check it out. It's a great podcast bookish. The canon continues, correct? Correct, yeah. yeah. Great. Well, gosh, so many things I want to talk to you about. We only have a short time, but uh, <laughs> maybe we can get most of these in. The first thing that obviously everybody catches their eye is, tell me about your experience in the Marines. Oh, uh, many, many, many years ago. <laughs> Too many to think about. I basically moved out very, very young. I was working full-time, taking care of myself, going to school, And I reached a point where I had started getting in trouble. I was, you know, becoming less responsible than I probably should have been. And I decided that the military was something that would be helpful to me. At the time, I was also very much into fitness. Decided I wanted to go into the best service that I, that at least looked like to me. I mean, all the services have it. And I know I'm going to make somebody mad with that. So I'm trying to be gentle there. But in my mind, the Marine Corps was the best. My parents had both been in the Army, but I chose the Marine Corps. Interestingly enough, I found that when I was in boot camp, their their standards were not quite as high as mine. So my fitness level kind of dipped, (laughs) ironically. (laughs) But I did graduate. I I only spent four years in the military. I was offered a promotion to stay. But at that point, I was married and I had my first child and it would have separated myself and my husband and I didn't Mm. want to do that. So I got out. So I only spent four years. My husband was in 13 years, I think. Mm. uh, And then got out. So yeah, all our kids were born while we were in the military. And so yeah, a long time ago though, like over 30 years ago. (laughs) What a cool story. Um, And you're pursuing right now your doctorate. You're almost done or. Oh no, no. I'm about two years away from my dissertation. Okay. So I'm about closing in on all the requirements being done. And then I have to go through the elective process and then I start writing the dissertation. So that's great. Yeah. It's a little nerve wracking and a little daunting to be honest. But. And you're balancing two other degrees at the same time or. Yeah, I'm, I'm a good student. I already have a, a bachelor's degree in accounting and a master's in business um, administration. So I'm, I'm adept at balancing a lot educationally, 
but the other two allow me to work at my own pace. So that's mm-hmm. incredibly helpful. So the doctorate, of course, is very structured. Sure. The others are much more loosely structured. So mm-hmm. I'm working on them, but they kind of take a backseat to the doctoral work. Okay. Okay, great. Well, I'm fascinating by, fascinated by the book that you have coming out. And I know, do you have a release date yet on it? No, actually, it was just officially submitted to the publisher. He's assured me over and over and over that he wants it because he approached me over a year ago about it. And, but I still am not convinced that he's actually going to want it. So even though I've submitted it, I'm waiting on pins and needles for his official acceptance sure. of the manuscript. And then, of course, that, then the process begins of you know focus group what needs to be changed? What Am I hitting my target audience? All of the, the fun stuff on the publishing side. So I have no idea. I'm hoping later this year, though. <laughs> so it's called Into the Gray. And before, I, I want to read an excerpt from the introduction that you sent me that hit me pretty hard today. But before I do that, can you just give kind of a high level to the listeners of what the book is about and where did it come from? Yeah, ironically, it was originally an idea that I wanted to save for my dissertation. I was interested in understanding the psychology behind somebody deconstructing what they believe about something, whether it be a religious ideal or a political ideal or, you know, anything. Excuse me. What I found is that I was going through a period of questioning my religious ideals and my relationship with God, trying to understand myself at a deeper level. And so the original idea was the review of the emotional and psychological effect of the deconstruction of a belief system and its uh, application to the grief cycle, which as I say that, I am already feeling like, oh, (laughs) it's a heavy subject and it sounds very scholastic and so kind of boring in all actuality, (laughs) but I was living it and and Mm. I was feeling all of those emotions and I was struggling with the psychology and my, you know, my own thought processes in that journey. And so I, I decided the best way that would be cathartic for me to deal with that would be to write. And so I started writing about what I was experiencing. And then I decided I just need to write this one anecdotally. It doesn't mean I still can't use the subject matter as a point for dissertation, but right now I need to explain how this has affected me and Mm. what I've learned along the way. And so it is a very anecdotal book. It does begin with my experience. It does go into several different psychological processes that are happening every day for anybody, you know, in our thought processes about anything and some really fascinating things that I learned along the way. But ironically, I still came back to that the majority of the emotion still mirrored a grief cycle. Mm. Uh, And so while there's a lot of people out there writing about deconstruction, I haven't seen anybody else approach it from this perspective, which is also what the publisher explained to me. Nobody's writing it from this perspective. That's why it's important. So I feel a lot of responsibility, I guess, to tell the story well. I'm not quite sure I'm up to it. So, you know, because I'm talking about a subject matter that affects a lot of people more than we actually realize. Um, yeah, I, I've I've been through something similar myself. Our, our stories are, aren't unsimilar. Mm-hmm. And it did hit me at at a point in my own journey that I was going some through something similar to grief. And so that's why I was so drawn to your work and your studies and what you're writing about, because I think it's really important because you, you always associate grief with, with death right. uh, or loss, or mm-hmm. I've heard it applied to say a divorce, but I've, but, but nobody has really talked about the same feelings and cycles when you go through a shift in in your life uh, when it comes to unraveling certain things that 
that were very important to you at one time, but then you've, you know, you awaken to a new reality for whatever reason that you go through yeah. uh, pain or, or suffering or uh, whatever it may be. And people may not, they don't realize what's happening to them uh, right. for, for a lot of, for at the beginning, I thought, well, am I going crazy? Am oh, I yeah. <laughs> suffering from the deep depression? Do I need to go Midlife on some crisis? Heavy- yes, exactly. <laughs> All of it. <laughs> And so I want to I want to read an excerpt from your intro because for me it I identified with it and I think it'll put set the context for maybe we can unpack this a little further. Okay. In your introduction you said I did not choose it and have many times wanted to go back. It just happened and still continues to happen. It's a painful process that is exasperated by loneliness and anger. I've asked myself over and over how I could have been as stupid as to just accept what I was fed like a small child that is unable to feed itself. Many times I was told to just be like Christ, as though it were a simple process to execute or even internalize. That very thought must be deconstructed as there are so many views of Christ. How Jesus would conduct himself in any instance is subjective based on the belief system of the individual. There is an objective truth to how Jesus would act, and we can find it, but it requires that we step outside of our perspective and understand that we may be in the wrong. Wow. It's a tough pill to swallow. (laughs) It is a tough pill to swallow. And, you know, the part, one of the part that, that just pulled me in when I was reading introduction, it said, it's a painful process that is exasperated by loneliness and anger. That's where I think so many of us in the process uh, kind of live and dwell, and that's where the grief process, you know, takes place. Right. And can before so before we jump into the specifics of your own experience, can you just tell our listeners what you've learned about, like what is the grief process and what's going on in the human mind and body, and can you just kind of open that for us so that we can kind of sure. frame frame the conversation? Sure. Well, like you mentioned earlier, I mean, when the subject of grief is brought up, it's usually in concert with the idea of somebody having died, or as you mentioned, maybe a relationship that has ended. And so to think about grieving God, so to speak, is a weird thing. We've we've each come from a background. You know, we have a familial history. We have a religious history. We have a different personality. We have a different take on life than anybody around us. It's very subjective. And as I began to really think about the process of grief as it pertains to the subject matter, the one thing that kept coming up is that word subjectivity. Grief is very subjective to the individual. We handle it differently. We see things differently. The timeline is different for everybody. And what I found is that deconstruction is the same. And so one of the things that struck me, because I ran into all different kinds of people, I spoke to all different kinds of people about their experiences. Some of their experiences didn't seem like mine, and I I was curious about it. And so, but it came back to this: if I have a grandparent, I'm gonna I'm gonna equate this to death because that's how most people see it. If I have a grandparent who's lived a very long life, very satisfying life, I have a great relationship with them, and they're passing away just from a natural cause. I'm going to grieve, but it's not going to be with anger. It's not going to be with dissatisfaction. It's just going to be I miss this person. So my grief is going to look different. 
than it would, let's say, if I have a very close relative or a friend or somebody that I love dearly who's murdered or killed by a drunk driver. There's going to be a different level of grief that happens in that because now I'm having to work through a range of emotions that deal with anger and probably depression. I, I mean, all of this can happen in either one of those situations, and I don't mean to dismiss either one, but the, the intensity of that grief would be different based on the circumstances. The same is true for deconstruction. If suddenly you wake up one day, and I think I even said this in the book, kind of because I'm a very sarcastic person, you wake up one day and the sun is shining and the birds are singing and you suddenly understand God from a different perspective, your deconstruction is probably not going to be as emotional in the negative, I should say, as somebody who is thrust into that process through some form of abuse or violence or, you know, just anger. So you're going to grieve differently. You're going to go through that process differently and you're going to hold on to different cycles of grief for longer. Ironically, I just spoke with my daughter yesterday and she kind of went through this process the same as me. And both of us were very centered in anger and depression. And it's taken a long time to come through that. And I am coming through that. I am, I do see the light at the end of the tunnel. She's not yet. And so it was very painful as her mother to listen to her and to hear the grief and the anger, you know, and to say, it's okay, honey, it's okay for you to feel this way. It's okay. Nobody gets to tell you how long that lasts. Nobody gets to tell you how you grieve that. You get to make that decision, but just don't get stuck, you know? And that's always the, that's always the, the warning, I guess, is people are concerned about people that are stuck in that process too long, but each one of us will be there for a different amount of time because we're different people. So yeah, and that's kind of that's kind of my <laughs> yeah, my take on it. Great. Yeah, the the unique thing about talking about grief in in this context, and, and I'd love to hear what kind of research or experience you've had on this, is when when you lose a loved one or a family member or whoever it may be, or even like I said, a divorce. Those are things that nobody can really. They're very conclusive and finite and no one can really argue with. When you go through something like this, you have many voices saying you're wrong. You're being self-centered. You're being misled. (laughs) What are you grieving about? You've got it. You don't know anything about pain. I've been through some, you know, you haven't lost anybody. There's just this whole range of voices that are speaking to you unlike other types of deep losses. Can you can you talk to that a little bit? Right. Well, again, I think it comes back to that level of subjectivity to the process. Again, people that are telling you that, of course, have are not grieving in the same way that you're grieving. And it doesn't occur to them that there's a different way to grieve. It's just their own experience. And to be quite honest, we're all somewhat selfish in that way. I, you know, our reality, our perception is reality. And it, it's very difficult to step outside of that and to view somebody else's process from an objective, objective standpoint. And so, and the other thing here is that we're talking about different kinds of deconstruction as well. If we really want to get into the subject matter, some people are only deconstructing maybe a belief, you know, a tenet of their belief system. Like, do they believe in hell anymore? Or is the Bible infallible? Those are relatively, and again, I say that relatively, not as a dismissive thing, but those are relatively surface level deconstruction things. You're changing your eyes, idea, your mind about ways that you believe. Then you have people that are actually deconstructing their relationships with God. 
Like they're trying to understand how they fit in with God, which may even lead into people that are deconstructing whether they believe there's a God anymore or not. And then you go even further and you start deconstructing yourself. And that's where it gets really dicey because suddenly you're at odds with everything you've ever thought or believed. So there's all this spectrum that's involved. And then on top of that spectrum, you have the spectrum of experience and response. And so when I have, and I've had plenty of people tell me that I'm being bitter, that I'm being selfish, that I, all of those things that you mentioned, excuse me, I've been told that. Uh, I've been told I'm going to hell for questioning God. I had one gentleman that very sarcastically told me to let him know what sulfur smelled like, which I guess was his Christian way of telling me that I was going to hell. I don't know. But there's, there's so many levels to all of this. To, to put it in a very elementary way and say you're grieving wrong is, is somewhat short-sighted, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Not only is I think it can be short-sighted, but it can be extremely patronizing and hurtful to the person going through it. And I think... Mm, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And do you think that do you think that there is a an awareness and awakening to to this this whole subject? And you know, I think your book will go a long way into help hopefully opening people's eyes and pushing that conversation forward. Do you think it's been handled, or or maybe let's let's make it personal? Like for you, do you feel like you handled it properly? Were you given the right tools? Did you have a community around you that allowed you and helped you? their therapist. Talk to me about your experience. Well, honestly, mine began about seven years ago. So it was, I mean, I had not heard of it. I had never heard that term deconstruction in this context. I mean, deconstruction has its own, you know, definition in another context, but in this context, it was relatively new as far as I knew. I didn't know a lot of people. I, um, I was attending church. I had a church family. I was very involved in my church. I, I actually am an ordained pastor. I, I was going along, living my life the way I thought a good Christian woman was supposed to live, but I was horribly bad at it, to be honest. I am pretty loudmouthed and opinionated. I am pretty, I, I can mess up quite vehemently and profanely here and there. <laughs> And so I struggled with trying to be that right Christian woman. So when the question started, I mean, in, because of my evangelical background, my immediate thought was the devil was trying to take me out. <laughs> I mean, I, it had to be demonic in, in nature to have these doubts and these questions come up. And I was incredibly hard on myself. My senior pastor at the time actually told me I needed to learn what grace meant. And ironically, when I did, he was not happy. My grace went a little further than he wanted it to. So I lost my community. I mm. lost every one of my friends because grace doesn't extend to those of us who question what how strong grace should be. So I lost everything. So my community mm. became my social media community, the people that I was coming in contact with through Facebook. I started listening to every podcast I could find, reading every book I could find. Anything and everything that had been off the table to me all that time suddenly became fair game. And I was pretty rebellious about it. I, I, I basically demanded information. I was no longer going to be try hard to be the docile Christian woman, I was going to be full-fledged. I'm going to go find what I want to know, period. Right. And the only thing that that does, however, is create more questions. <laughs> sure. And I, and sure. again, I'm somebody that's very control oriented. So to, to be out of control and to not be able to have certainty is devastating, just mm. devastating. So 
that, 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 you know, so I started finding people online that were, and I, I started noticing there's other people going through this. There's other people questioning and losing their communities and struggling with who God is and how, who they were with God. And, and then of course the term I showed up one day, I don't even remember where I saw it first, but you know, it became a very valid and very popular term very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I feel like, you know, I'm 55 episodes in and a majority of my guests, some of them prominent, some of them not all going through a very similar story of saying, you know, I woke up to the reality of mystery, the reality of a much deeper awareness of the divine freedom, um, an awareness of who I was, an awareness that I wasn't hopelessly broken and flawed. All the things that you know, are part of our our religious upbringings, really, you know, an awakening to that. But then at the same time, there's so much shame that is attached to so many of those things from the outside, but more from the inside. Yes. Because those teachings run very deep. Those ideologies run very deep. Oh, very um, much so. And they're hard to unstick to the psyche, I think. So talk about that a little bit. In your, in, in your book, do you talk about ways, healthy ways to process this? Do you talk about ways to, you know, tools or, or things that, that we shouldn't be doing or that we should be doing? <laughs> I don't actually, uh, my book is very open to the process for each person to define individually. What I do is provide a space to say, you're okay where you are, mm, even if that good. means you're messed up for a while, because I don't get to define somebody else's psychological journey. I, I only get to be a support system that that allows and holds space for that person to figure it out. Good. When you go to therapy, the therapist is not there to figure out your problem for you. The therapist is there to facilitate the space for you to figure out your problem mm. and, and to find the answers. And so I feel like that's how this has to work too. Just as God reaches each one of us differently, if we believe that, you know, through books or music or nature or however you want to define it, he also has the ability to touch each one of us in this process differently. And as I said earlier, there's even a point in the process where you're not sure God is there, if, if we're right. honest. Now, not yes. everybody's going to experience that, but I think the vast majority of them do. The people that I've spoken to all have. And it was funny, in my conversation with my daughter yesterday, she asked me point blank, she said, Mom, do you believe in God? And I said, today, yes. Hmm. I said, but tomorrow that may be completely different because right. it ebbs and it flows and I have to figure this out. And she told me, I don't know that I'm ever going to be able to believe in God again. And of course, my parental side kind of cringed at that, you know, but I stopped and I said, okay. I said, well, honey, you're allowed to think that, but don't close your mind to the event or to the possibility that that may change in the future because this is a process, you know? And, and so I don't have go to how to get out of jail quick tips. (laughs) I wish I did to be all in all honesty, but a very, very good friend of mine. I think, you know, I'm Matthew DiStefano when I was going through this, made the comment to me when he told me I was going to question God at some point, And I thought he was crazy. And then when I got to that point, I, I talked to him about it and I said, I want to be done with this. And his comment to me that I, he doesn't remember it, but I still give him credit for it. He said, the only way through this process, the only way out of this process is through this process. Right. There's, there's no, there's no cheat. You don't get to jump levels. (laughs) Yes. You have to, you have to walk through it. And again, that timeline is going to be different for every person. So my biggest thing that I tell people is be patient with yourself, be gracious Mm -hmm. and merciful to yourself 
and allow yourself this time because it's important. Mm -hmm. It is important mentally and psychologically. Mm -hmm. This is a very important thing for you. Yes. Yes. As you were going through this, what's the, what's the hardest, what was the hardest part for you? Was it losing a community, losing friendships, relationships, or was there something Mm -hmm. else? What was hardest for you? Well, as I said, it's been like a seven year process so far. And by the way, if somebody had told me seven years ago, it would take seven years. I think I would have broken down in tears because that's unthinkable. Initially, it was the loss of community, although I will admit I'm very much an introvert. So, okay, (laughs) you know, if if I've never been a let's go shopping, go to lunch kind of girl anyway. So that that part, but that part did make me very angry that the people that I had pledged my life to and shown my support to were suddenly not capable of doing the same thing for me. That was very angering. And and I still find myself there every now and then. I think probably the hardest part was, again, on some level, different phases, different things. I went through a period of almost PTSD-like reactions, panic attacks, as it pertained to certain beliefs. So like when when I first came across the, the discussion on whether hell existed or not, because in my experience, hell, of course, existed, and I was probably going there. I had done everything I could to avoid that. Suddenly somebody tells you there's no hell and you go, oh, there's this sense of relief. But then the doubt creeps back in. Like, well, I was wrong before. What if I'm wrong again? And I would have actual panic attacks. And that that happened for a long time. So that part was very difficult. But probably the most incredibly difficult part is trying to decide whether I still believe in God or not. And, And if so, in what fashion? Is he the angry, wrathful God that I was raised to believe? I hope not, because that God is not worth my time. So that becomes a very big sticking point because now if you say I'm questioning whether God exists or not, you're suddenly now apostate. You are heretical. You know, you're, you're everything, all those people, you're a backslider. You're everything, all those things people warned you about all those years, you know? And so you have to reconcile that in your mind that I'm okay with being uncertain right now, which is very difficult. So, because yes. in my background, I don't know about yours, but certainty was equated with faith. But in all, oh, in, in all reality, the definition of faith is mystery. It's not, right. it's not certainty. So, that's right. you know, that's right. That, that becomes a very big stepping stone in this whole process. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Do you, in your book, do you write about and talk about how loved ones, family members, those uh, friendships can help to support the person that's going through this and or maybe see things alternatively through their eyes. Do you get into that at all in your book? I do talk about relationships um, because quite a bit anecdotally has been told to me how adversely people's relationships were affected by this process. Um, Mm -hmm. Because not everybody's going through it exactly in the same time or, you know, it's not even though it's a linear process. There's no, I'm at this point, where are you? You It doesn't work that way. And so, you know, I found myself pretty much at odds. Of course, losing my church community, I felt as though it was my fault and my family was suffering because of that. So I struggled with that. My husband and I were in very different places and and he couldn't understand what I was going through. So he was often frustrated and angry with me, which was very difficult, you know, and then my kids experienced it differently. The people I know that have spoken to me about it, most of the relationships, unless that person is going through deconstruction too, those relationships are adversely affected for quite a while, if they recover at all. And there are people that have lost their marriages or their their relationships with children because of this. And that's very sad to me. 
I actually included in the book a section, I don't know if you're familiar with Kafka and his story of the beetle. The main character, Gregor, wakes up one day to find that he's turning into a beetle. And I found so much correlation in that to the idea of relationships and watching how his family responded to him. How at first there was polite, you know, almost plastic smiles and trying to understand and and they were trying to draw him into the conversation and of course he they couldn't understand him anymore his voice was changing his language was changing and and along the way how they began to distance themselves until he's left alone and he dies and we're not told whether he dies by suicide or how he dies we only find out at the end that his family has continued on without him as though he didn't exist and I found so much correlation in that to many of the stories that I had heard about the relationships involved in this process And that breaks my heart. I want to believe that had it been the other way around, had my husband gone through this process before me, that I would have responded well, but I don't know that I would have. And and unfortunately, nobody knows that until they're confronted with it. So my advice is I hope that people will be patient with people that are asking questions. And when you see them being angry or, you know, frustrated or sad, that you'd have compassion for that. I mean, that is a Christian characteristic, compassion and mercy. And since the majority of what we're talking about in deconstruction comes from a Christian perspective, that's, that would be my expectation. Unfortunately, it hasn't always been my experience. So that's, that's disappointing, but that's reality. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, we do. I do talk about relationships but not necessarily how to support somebody going through it because I don't know how to support somebody going through it other than to just let them do it. So, yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, when we, when we think through these things and we talk about them, I always ask my guests and I believe this to be true. And that's one of the, the purposes of this podcast is to push this kind of conversation forward to allow spaces for people to talk about it. I've had people on my show, uh, podcast was the first time they've ever really openly talked about their questioning. And, and, and I hope that I can provide those spaces, but do you feel like in your experience and where you are in your life? And I I think you and I appear to be probably similar ages. Do you feel like this is happening more? And there is, you know, from when we were young and growing up in the church, I'm sure this is a universal experience. I know it's been going on for hundreds of thousands of years in many different frameworks and societies and religions and ways of looking at life. But do you feel like in America, in evangelicalism and the Christian tradition, do you feel like this is happening more and more because of just time and science and uh, knowledge? I would say yes. A simple answer is yes. I, I think that what you're seeing is, of course, so much more information is readily available to people through the use of the internet and social media and whatnot, that when questions arise, somebody can easily throw that question out, which you may never have been exposed to before. And suddenly you're like, oh, I've never thought of that. So there is that that advantage, I think, that we have right now. Well, advantage, I use loosely. Maybe it's not an advantage to everybody. (laughs) But I do think it's happening more and more because I do believe that the church has been through several different evolutions throughout the, the, the history of the church itself. One of the things that you're seeing, of course, in our country, and again, as I said earlier, this process is not specific to religion. Deconstruction is is not specific to a religion, one religion, or even just religion as a totality. It's actually inherent also in political ideology and and societal ideology. All of these things, we're constantly changing our minds. We're constantly being confronted with new information. So we have to disseminate that information and decide whether it's valuable or not. 
And so what I think you're seeing is specifically in America um, is a dissatisfaction for a lot of how Christianity is conducting itself in the, in the public sphere. Mm. Um, and I say this often, Christianity began as a culture, a counterculture movement that wanted nothing to do with government and empire. And it was about the individual and has now become a dominating force in politics. Mm. And because of that, it's lost its appeal to a lot of the masses um, because they're seeing that it doesn't look any different and it's supposed to. And so that's, that's one of the disappointments that I have several years ago. And this was actually before I started deconstruction. I don't remember the year the book came out, but there was a book that came out called church refugees. And it was a sociological study done on what they coined the nuns and duns, the people that were just done with organized religion, because it wasn't fulfilling what they thought the church was supposed to do. It had become very corporate in its, in its present presentation. It had become very oriented to attendance and numbers, as opposed to the heart and love and, and reach, you know, outreach and the individual. And so they, this was actually a very good sociological study that was done that showed these people weren't giving up on God. They were giving up on organized religion because mm. it didn't look right anymore. Mm. And I think that's what you're continuing to see. And more and more so that you have this core group of evangelical mindset that's maintained its presence in the world in a political manner. And I, honestly, I don't think they represent Jesus well. That's my personal opinion. That they, just, I just don't think they represent Jesus well. Not the Jesus that that I think should be. And again, I'll be accused of making Jesus in my own image because of that statement. But you know, Jesus was always about the person, the individual. He, right. He only had harsh words for the you know the church authorities and you know, things like that. So you know, I don't I don't want to be a part of a dominant political ideology. I don't feel like that really is me following Christ a Christ like ethic. Yeah. Um, so I do believe that there is a continuing evolution, and there and, and, and it, there'll be more of them. <laughs> That's the way this all yeah. happens. Yeah. So, yeah. It brings got a my home, political it, input for the day. <laughs> no, I agree with you 120%. And I find it interesting that when you deconstruct much of your religious beliefs, all of a sudden your politics go right along with it. Yeah, they do. And uh, you find out how much of how much of your quote politics were wrapped up in this weird conglomeration of religious yeah. ideology that they are so intertwined that you almost, when you start peeling the onion away, uh, that becomes peeled away too. And you, and you, uh, and you start to um, question, you know, if, if I'm really like you said about faith and the divine and Jesus caring for the least of these and looking at immigrants and those that are downtrodden, everything that he was about, the Sermon on the Mount, everything that we know about the historical Jesus, like you said, empire, religion, evangelicalism, everything that's wrapped up in, in that national white nationalism, white privilege, mm -hmm. uh, is the opposite of that altogether. And yet how it stands together yeah. and it's so commingled. Um, as righteous and good and holy. It's just mind-boggling on so many levels. Right. Well, the, re you, go ahead. the reality is that we were always taught that Jesus stood with the other, or I was anyway. I was taught that Jesus stood with the other, and yet we've become a society that's very dependent on this very dichotomous viewpoint. So as soon as we other somebody, what we fail to realize is that Jesus now stands with them, you know? And so we kind of are cutting off our own nose to spite our face when we when we try to 
take hold of Jesus and, and kind of, you know, copyright him to our version of Christianity, as opposed to allowing Jesus to be Jesus and to us to try and figure out what that looks like and to follow it and emulate it and be a disciple as opposed to trying to force Jesus to look like he's our disciple. And, and that's a problem for a lot of people. But again, coming back to what you read in the introduction, the idea of Jesus itself has to be deconstructed. And not many people are willing to do that. Well, well, let's let's go there for a few minutes. Now I know we have we have a few minutes left. Deconstructing Jesus. Where 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 are you right now? I know it changes from day to day, but where are you with that? How have you yeah. <laughs> deconstructed, reconstructed, reconstructed, then deconstructed? the person of Jesus and and where are you right now on that journey uh, of faith? Where, where, where have you landed this week? (laughs) I have found I'm at a point in the process where I actually miss God most of the time. Sometimes I don't. And, but I, I miss that, that feeling of relationship with God. I've confronted the idea of Jesus. And even if I am doubtful that God exists and that Jesus is the son of God. I believe in the historical man, Jesus, and I believe that the life he lived was worth emulating. So at the very least, if this is it, if this is the life I get and there's no great beyond, then I want this life to count for something. I want it to stand for those values that mean something to me. And I've identified some of those love and mercy, grace, empathy, and joy. Those are my five go-tos. I want my life to emulate that and to bring that to other people. And to me, that feels like following Jesus. I don't know that that will be the same definition for every person, but I feel like those are, those are attributes that are fairly consistent with the idea of Jesus. And so I want him to be the son of God and I want to believe in God, but it can't be, like I said earlier, it can't be the violent, wrathful God that I was raised to believe in. I have to step outside and say, maybe we've misunderstood God. I hope we have, in all honesty. I I don't need a tyrant. There's enough tyrants running around. I don't need a a tyrant or, and I think I even said this in the book, sometimes God comes off as like a three-year-old child stomping his foot trying to get his way. And that, you know, that never worked in my house. And so why would I want a God that seems that way? And so I, I want those attributes that come out as caring and loving and considerate of the other that draws people to you because they see something of value. In, in how you live your life. So that's where I fall with Jesus right now. Mm. He's, I still want to look like him, no matter what. Mm. Mm. That's good. That's good. I I listened to you, one of your last episodes uh, of your podcast on Bookish, and you were talking about uh, a book with uh, along with a, with a guest host, and you were talking about spiritual practices and how important mm-hmm that 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 is is that something that you do or do you do you have spiritual practices i have kind of put aside the majority of my historical spiritual practices and and i think most people coming out of evangelicalism would identify those probably as prayer and reading your bible and meditation and all of those things mine have changed and and they changed very quickly because i no longer trusted myself to understand god or the bible i put the bible down I felt like I could probably do more harm with it than good (laughs) based on my level of understanding or confusion about God at that time. I've not picked it back up for a long time. I will every now and then if I need to look up something, but it has not a part of my daily practice. I have included some level of meditation, but not 
on anything specific. I do that more now for to clear my mind and to, and to start my day from a peaceful place. I'm much more interested now in spending time in nature because I really feel like God is there in nature. And that became my go-to when I was no longer welcome at church. My go-to became a Sunday morning hike. And I did that for years. And, and that's where I was quiet and able to hear God and to listen and to feel at peace for a little while. So I see God differently now. I find God differently. It sounds silly, but I actually have a dog that I think is like, he's my spiritual animal. <laughs> I finally have a dog that belongs to me in my house and he, he reads my mood and he's right there. And so I feel like he's almost God ordained. When I'm frustrated or angry, he's right there and he reminds me, I love you. You know, and so it's a good depiction of of how I feel like that relationship with God should be. He's always readily available. He's always there, but I don't know that it's a spiritual practice, so to speak. Yeah, um, no, I I, I <laughs> resonate with everything you said. I find it, I find there's a um, a consistent theme of 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 this people who have gone through similar journeys, and you can read about it even in history. There's historical mm-hmm. documentation of a reconnection with nature and a reconnection yeah. with, you know, creatures and the reconnection with uh, the outside and finding a, a oneness. And, and I think that's really beautiful as, yeah. as, as it's almost like that's the way it was meant to be, <laughs> but uh, exactly. we've, cut, we've cut ourselves, <laughs> we've cut ourselves off from that with whatever, right. you know, various systems that, that have cut, cut us off from that. So that's beautiful. I'm glad. I'm glad that that's that's a source of of peace and joy for you. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so, is how can people find you? Stay up to date with your writings, your 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 podcast, all that. Is there social media? Um, yeah. The um, I always feel intimidated by this question. <laughs> I always feel like I'm supposed to have a bigger presence than I do. Oh, not at all. <laughs> I'm, of course, avidly available on Facebook. That's been my go-to for a lot of number of years. And I have a public page. So everything that I write or say is available to anybody that happened to stumble upon it. I do have an Instagram account, however, and we didn't go into this, but my Instagram account is specific to my physical journey. I'm a bodybuilder and I'm hoping to compete later this year. So that is kind of all specific to that. You can find my podcast if you if you go, it's usually, it's on Podbean, it's on Spotify, it's on iTunes. If you have trouble finding it, you can go to the choir pod, uh, website, com, and there's a tab at the top for podcasts, and mine is sitting there along with Heretic Happy Hour, and it'll take you right to um, my bio, and it'll help you find the podcast itself. So those are pretty much my own outlets. I I keep a low profile, I guess, so to speak, as far as the number of outlets I have. That may change if the book gets published. We'll see. (laughs) Well, I'm looking forward to it. And if it doesn't get published, I still want a copy. (laughs) Mm. I'll remember that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Michelle, for your time. I appreciate your honesty and transparency. and And I always appreciate people who are willing to open their lives and share publicly their own struggles in the process, even when they're not, you know, haven't feel like they've got it all figured out. We need yeah. to hear your voice. We need to know that we're not alone, that we're seen and that we're all, you know, with, not to recoin a cheesy phrase, but we are in this together. So it's Absolutely. good to connect. <laughs> yeah. And it's good to connect. And I hope my listeners, there might be one or two people out there, hopefully that uh, are just like, wow, 
um, finally uh, someone <laughs> understands me. So thanks for <laughs> it's a that. a good feeling when you stumble across that. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, Thank you so much, Michelle. Yeah, and My pleasure. Yes, yes. And for those listeners who want to know more about Michelle, you can go find her on her uh, on Facebook. You also have a Facebook group for your podcast, right? Oh, that's true. I do. Uh, actually, I have a couple groups. I have uh, the Bookish Facebook group for those people that are interested in the podcast and the discussion of things. And I actually have another group I've not been very active in called Constructive Deconstruction. It was a group that was started quite a while ago, different people that are going through different levels of deconstruction. And they, they discuss quite a bit of things in there as well. So that's available too. I had forgotten all about that. So. <laughs> great, great. Well, thank you so much for your time. And, you know, we're just hoping that book gets published. And when it does, we'll have to have you back on. Me too. All right. Talk to you later, Michelle. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was great talking with you. Thank you. All right. All right.